What up, guys? Welcome to the next episode of FedWatch. I'm super excited for this week's episode uh, here with Ansel Lindner. Um, but before we get into the show, let's talk a quick shout out to Bitcoin Magazine and a, uh, a cool piece of content that we're putting together for Bitcoin Independence Day. It's going to be the 1st of August, this upcoming Saturday. We're going to be streaming three big debates as well as Bitcoin updates from around the world, the Philippines, Asia, South America. We're doing that with the help of Jimmy Song and Alex Gladstein from the Little Bitcoin book. Uh, so it's going to be a great piece of content, a great memorial to Bitcoin Independence Day. So highly uh, suggest and uh, encourage you guys to check that out. Um, also happening on Bitcoin Independence Day is Al, uh, Ansel here is dropping his first book. So I'll give I'll hand it off to Ansel so he can pitch uh, the Bitcoin Dictionary. It's about a year's in the making. It takes a long time to write good definitions. Like there's a bunch of uh, in the Bitcoin Dictionary. There's I would say each word is kind of like a mini wikipedia article you know like four paragraph wikipedia article on each term so you have a definition and a term uh, about 180 uh, total terms in there and that will be released on bitcoin independence day at least the ebook and then i'm going to shortly get the paperback book up for order as well awesome well i'm super excited for it and uh i got my pre-order in and uh yeah i mean ultimately when it comes down to a lot of these debates a lot of the area is like there's just confusion and different definitions between things. So having a resource that's like official and obviously having someone like you who just deeply cares about, um, you know, being very accurate and specific with speech, you know, I, th I think it's going to really help a lot of people as a resource moving forward. Uh, so I'm really glad that you put that together. So this episode, we're going to do uh, just a quick update on Fed and macro here at the beginning. And then we have a debate about deflation versus inflation. I moderated Ansel debated on the side of deflation against Andy Edstrom from Why Buy Bitcoin and Swan Bitcoin, uh, who debated on the side for inflation. I thought it was a fascinating debate. I think Personally, what I took from it is both Ansel and Andy acknowledge what is happening and then what they foresee as being the most likely scenario moving forward, as well as what is best for Bitcoin is different. Ultimately, you know, <laughs> you know, I think this debate is not going to end, but, you know, this is a really great way to to tease it out. A Ansel, what was your take? Uh, you know, what, what was your feedback on on the debate with Andy? I was good. Uh, it was more cordial than I thought it was going to be. Uh, you know, on Twitter, like Andy said at the end, yeah, on Twitter, you can uh, be a little bit, I don't know, maybe the smile on your face doesn't come across, you know, when you say something. And so, uh, no, but it was really good. Yeah, we, we agreed on, I think, 90% of the, I guess you would call them facts of the matter. And then the 10%, that is the nuance. That is all it takes is the 10% between inflation and deflation on this argument. So, yeah, it was good. Awesome. Well, let's let's jump into uh, this Market Watch article that you you had teed up for for the beginning here. All right. So I don't really have much for a Fed update other than they did extend uh, the emergency loan programs for three more months until the end of 2020. I love this subtitle here. Uh, so far, use of the programs has been scarce. So yeah, they have all these programs. There's we talk about all these. Uh, bailouts from the Fed, but really it's not the actual bailouts of the Fed or, or Fed purchasing assets 
It's the Fed put that is doing all this. Um, it's been extended. Uh, they extend seven of its emergency loan programs until the end of the year. Quote, the three-month extension will facilitate planning by potentially by potential facility participants and provide certainty that the facilities will continue to be available to help the economy recover from the COVID-19 pandemic, the Fed said. Uh, overall, the Fed programs haven't seen a lot of interest in recent weeks. The Fed's balance sheet, which jumped to over $7 trillion as a result of the Fed's asset purchase program, has shrunk since the mid-June or since mid-June, and we covered that on the last episode, mainly due to uh, the liquidity swaps getting uh, rolling off. Uh, for instance, the Fed's lending to primary dealers has unwound from a peak of $33 billion on April 15th to $1.7 billion on July 15th. To date, its Main Street lending program to businesses has been very small, with $14 million. Uh, that's, that's not very much extended. The total amount of corporate bond purchases has been relatively modest at $11.8 billion, and a vast majority of that being ETFs. Fed officials asserted the lack of activity as a sign of health, uh, that credit has, uh, was available from other sources. They argued it was important that the lending programs were in place in case financial conditions deteriorated again. Critics have countered that maybe the Fed programs are too complex. That's, uh, that's about it for this article, really. Uh, any thoughts on that? Firstly, um, do you think that these programs are too complex or do you think that there's just no demand for, for the programs? Probably a little bit of both, but mainly that there's no demand. Okay. And then secondly, like, honestly, I feel like we should probably do another art, uh, podcast about the Fed put, but it's, it's kind of interesting. Like, you, Bitcoin, Tina, a lot of people more on the Austrian side will say like money is not a good, it's not a belief system. It is a real good that has real properties and a real network that does very unique and specific things. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the flip side, it seems like our current system and the current prices of equities is really hinged on this belief of the Fed put. Like it's, it's this, you know, imaginary thing. Uh, like, what do you make of what do you make of like that situation like is our current system really that dependent on belief or is it also this monetary network that is a real thing where the fed just doesn't even have any control over it that's a great point uh, i think it's mainly because the credit based system or the credit based currency that we have is dependent on the feelings so if we had a bitcoin standard or gold standard right we have 21 million dollar or 21 million bitcoins in the economy, whether people are, um, you know, in a good mood, they're in an expansionary mood, or they're in a, a depressed mood. So we have the same amount of Bitcoin in the economy. But when you have a credit-based system, it's not that way. When people get depressed, they stop borrowing and they stop lending, and so it's a deflationary force. Just the the you know the credit the money as a credit-based uh, system has like this uh, people's psychology actually manifests in what the, the properties of the asset. The properties of Bitcoin or gold are set, right? And does, you can't change that. But yeah, in this credit-based system, um, like I said in, in the debate that we'll get into, maybe I don't want to spoil that, but uh, you have to have growth to have expansion. And you have to, uh, uh, in a 
deflation or, or a time when you are maybe hunkering down, right, and saving a little bit more, you by definition are contracting the money supply. I think this is a good time to just get right into the debate then. It is, it is uncertain whether the Fed is even doing anything. I would say that that is probably one of the biggest takeaways of doing this show so far. Um, there's a lot of other experts that think the same way. I highly recommend checking out Jeff Schneider from Alhambra. Yeah, let's just jump into this, uh, this debate portion of the podcast. Please enjoy inflation versus deflation, Ansel Lindner versus Andy Edstrom. All right, guys, uh, I'm super excited to bring the first ever debate to FedWatch, uh, sitting here with Ansel, per usual, and we are joined by a past guest of the show, um, when the show used to be called WTF, but Andy Edstrom has been on the show before, talking about intergenerational conflict. This week, he comes on to debate with Ansel about whether or not we are going to be seeing a classic inflation. Uh, Ansel has an unpopular opinion here where um, he thinks that uh, this everything is different now and, and deflation is what's going to be happening. So we're going to open it up with an opening statement from Andy, and then we'll go to Ansel. Welcome to the show. And uh, yeah, this is our first ever guest, at least under FedWatch. So I'm excited. Andy, why don't you give us your case for why you think inflation is upon us. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. Thanks, Ansel. Thanks, CK. I appreciate you guys uh, taking on this format. Um, I think it started uh, at my instigation with uh, with a little bit of fire on Twitter. And uh, so I appreciate you guys uh, accommodating. Yeah, so a couple uh, opening statements. So when I published this thing in September of last year, I went through the thesis of basically there's too much debt. And what are the possible ways that problem will ultimately be dealt with. You know, there's a list of ways to deal with too much debt, and I won't get into them in too much detail, but there's austerity, right? Belt tightening, living within our means. That's politically impossible. There is mass defaults. That looks like a, you know, like a, basically a depression. We tried that almost a hundred years ago, and I think politicians will avoid it. We've got um, a debt jubilee, right? Debt forgiveness, This comes from biblical times, the notion being that when a new ruler comes to power, you just forgive the debts. The problem with that is you um, end up questioning property rights and the basic uh, contract law that underpins the economy. And then you've got other options like you've got, you know, tax and spend redistribution. You've got financial repression that's lowering interest rates and, and, and sometimes putting capital controls in place. That's kind of happening now, although there probably will be more. And then option six is inflation. So when I think about the big picture, I think about inflation looks like the least painful way to go. So that's item one, I'll say. The second thing I'll say is, um, and this borrows a little bit from a presentation I gave at the Value of Bitcoin conference uh, a couple months ago, which is you've got monetary, you've got Milton Friedman who said inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. And that's true as far as it goes, which is not very, which is to say, that doesn't really tell you when you're likely to actually empirically get inflation. Steve Hankey is another economist who pointed out that it's actually a fiscal phenomenon, which is to say, when you look through histories of cycles of inflation, you find that the, the situations where you tend to actually get inflation are the ones where governments are running big deficits and they're monetizing those deficits. That is going on right now. So I think that's a major um, you know, reason we're, we're likely to face inflation before too long. Another thing I'll say is inflation 
we love to talk about it and we love to debate it, but we don't really understand it, right? And one of the reasons we don't really understand it is there's a psychological component, which is to say, you know, and by the way, when, we're, when I'm talking about inflation, I'm talking about increases in the price of consumed goods and services, right? I'm leaving aside asset price inflation. That's one thing. I am not taking the sort of, you know, quantity of money, you know, Austrian definition of inflation, but, you know, we can talk about that too. Um, but I'm talking about like actual, you know, cost of living going up. And when we talk about what the Keynesians like to talk about is they have to talk about velocity of money. And the velocity of money has been falling, right? What does that mean? Well, for us Bitcoiners, it means people are hodling, right? They're hodling their dollars. They're hodling their euros. They're hodling their yen. So what could cause people to stop hodling their dollars, euros, and yen? Well, there's a mass psychology element, right? There's the, I look at my neighbor and I see what he's doing and he's noticing maybe prices have started to go up and he's noticing that uh, Jay Powell and other central bankers have gone on 60 minutes and talked about how there's literally no limit to how much money they can print. And people start to scratch their heads and say, oh, huh, maybe I shouldn't hold on to these dollars. Maybe they won't maintain their purchasing power. So I think we just have to acknowledge there's a big psychological element there. As far as why now, again, there's a, there's a lot of reasons. Um, one is the markets are telling us now. In other words, <laughs> gold, silver, Bitcoin, stocks, Basically, everything has been going up lately, right? This is usually indicative that the market is telling you that inflation is coming maybe sooner than we thought before, although we can debate how long that will take. And um, so, the, so, so I think there's a major market signal going on. I, can also, I also would like to talk about, you know, why now versus a few years from now, because there's some underlying factors that are, that are driving it right now or likely to drive it, you know, in the next couple of years or even sooner. But I also don't want to go on a monologue for too long here. So maybe I'll, uh, maybe I'll turn it over to Ansel, um, you know, just to, yeah. just to start here. I think perfect timing. So Ansel, why don't you give your opening statement and, uh, and thoughts on what Andy just said? First off, like Christian, you started by saying, I think it's different this time. I don't, I don't think it's different this time. And I'll, I'll try to explain that. Um, I, first off, I, I'm a sound money guy. I'm a Bitcoiner. I'm a hard money guy. I've been invested in gold for 20 years. So um, I know the arguments inside and out. Um, but uh, we, we need to define inflation like Andy was, was uh, talking about there. And it has to be a monetary inflation. That's what we need to concentrate on because, yeah, prices can go up and down. There's many different prices uh, or many different reasons prices can go up and down, including deflation, uh, because I'll get I'll get touch on that. Uh, but I don't think M2 matters. I don't think the balance sheet matters. The, that is, I think money is something different. It is not necessarily dollars, uh, reserves denominated in dollars. It's something else. So uh, the reason why it's not different this time is because when you look at previous uh, world reserve currency standards, they did not end in hyperinflation. The pound did not hyperinflate. You know, there, there was some devaluations during the 20th century, but those were controlled devaluations of fixed exchange rates and stuff, not uh, uncontrolled inflation. And even before that, as the, the pound was losing its status, uh, you know, World War I and stuff, there was not a hyperinflation. Uh, if anything, it was due to a deflationary, like, drag on the economy. And if you go back to the French pound or the livre, the same thing, they, 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 went off of their own Libra standard to the Asenyat. And yeah, they had hyperinflation in that, but not in the Libra. So the, the, 
the world reserve currencies don't hyperinflate. That just doesn't happen. Um, at least in the last two, you could go back maybe four or 500 years and find the, some sort of Spanish dollar standard that hyperinflated. But um, I mean, you're going really far back. So I don't think it's, it's different this time. It's the same. It's the same as everything. Um, if hyperinflation is bad. <laughs> we should want to avoid that at all costs. Uh, you know, people starve. It's not good for Bitcoin. People starve. They don't buy Bitcoin during hyperinflation. Um, and we know how to tackle inflation. Like just go back to 1980 with Paul Volcker. If the inflation gets too high, you just crank the interest rates up and inflation will be squashed. What we don't know how to handle is deflation. All we know how to do is shore up the deflationary dam from breaking. You know, we have a deflationary shock and we shore it up. That's all we know how to do, but we can't get rid of the deflationary environment. The only way to get rid of the deflationary environment is to let it deflate. And we have not done that yet. We can look all around to see that the prices are going down, not up. I mean, yes, there is short periods of price uh, appreciation like in this gold, but a $300 gold advance in five trading days is not inflation. That's, a, that's some sort of market behavior bubble type uh, behavior, not uh, inflation. Now there's, okay, so how does deflation, how can deflation result in higher prices? Well, you have a deflationary shock, right? Demand goes down production gets cut and then you have a reflation or a rebound prices jump off the bottom because production has been cut. You also have changes in behavior. So people add to their inventories or they change their behavior towards more savings. And one reason why stocks are, I think going up is because savings have been, uh, you know, we've been told now for generations that stocks are how you save and, and things. So when the savings rate goes up in this time, then uh, stocks are going to go up. So there's lots of different ways uh, that behavior that changes and can make prices go up that have nothing to do with monetary inflation. Uh, food prices, you have, you know, we saw two months ago, the, farm, the supply chains were breaking down. The farmers were killing their hogs and their cattle and dumping milk down the drain. And all the production was cut. So what happens to prices later? They, they go up. So now we're just seeing this bounce off of the bottom of a deflation. It's due to deflation. It's not due to inflation. Um, I could go on and on, but the big kicker is the 10 year yields, 60 basis points. There's no inflation. So the first thing I'll say is we definitely agree about hyperinflation. Um, I think in my book, I put my recollection is I put my expectation is like, you know, mid to high single digit inflation, call it, you know, five to 8% annualized on, let's say the CPI, consumer price inflation, that would look, you know, a lot like what we had in the 1970s. I mean, it got worse than that in the 70s, right? We got double digit inflation. We did not get hyperinflation. So I think on that point, uh, Ansel, you know, we can agree that a hyperinflation, you know, a la, I don't know, Weimar Republic, you know, or Venezuela or any of these types of situations is not expected. I don't expect that outcome. So I fully agree. Um, with respect to, you know, the difference between money supply and inflation itself, uh, here we agree again. Um, I will now, you know, talk about the, the slide that I put in my presentation at the, at the Value of Bitcoin conference, which I put four factors in there. And I, I in retrospect, might have included five, but, but here's what they are. So the first is technology, right? And here the Jeff Booth thesis I'm totally on board with, right? I mean, 
tech advances, it brings the cost of making stuff, you know, both uh, uh, physical objects, you know, consumer goods and services brings them down. Okay. That is a constant deflationary force and it may even be accelerating. That's his thesis. I, I buy that. I don't buy into the thesis basically that uh, the tech deflation will win against central bank money printing, but I'll leave that aside for now. Um, so you mentioned, I think, global, well, you implicitly mentioned trade. Well, actually, you didn't really mention trade. You mentioned supply chain. Here, I totally agree as well. And the view I take is, you know, when, joint, when China joined the WTO 20 years ago, um, that was a massive deflationary force. And of course, that's in reverse now. Um, it's been in reverse basically since Trump got elected. And of course, you know, we saw the problems with the, the embassy closings or the consulate closings. These are not great signs, right? We are, we, the U.S. and China are decoupling. I think it'll continue. That will cause uh, supply chains to come apart and it should on average raise the cost of production, which is inflationary. And that's going on right now. Historically, massive government deficits, I mentioned monetizing of debts. This is, again, an empirical observation, right? I mean, you can argue about sort of the logic of why it should be. But when you look at historical cases of massive deficits that are getting monetized or funded effectively by the the central bank, that tends to be inflationary. And then the piece that I think is not understood enough is demographics, which is two major demographic cohorts, right? And here, again, we may agree. You had the boomers, which is the biggest uh, you know, demographic cohort in the U.S., they have been retiring. I can tell you from personal experience, anecdotally, I got a lot of boomer clients, right? I'm a wealth manager. I manage their, their investments. And they are leaving the labor force. Well, they're still going to consume, right? They're still going to buy stuff, but they're no longer working. And if they're not working, that is a supply of labor that has left the workforce. And all else equal, that should be that should push upward on wages, all else equal. The second demographic shift is actually the, uh, the boomers' kids, right? So the only generation that's bigger than the boomers is millennials. Um, and so the millennials were joining the workforce for a period of years. They were adding their labor you know, to the workforce as they graduated school, you know, basically as they took jobs, as may be the case with at least, uh, at least one person uh, on this call, maybe two. I don't know how old you guys both are. But, but that shift has basically occurred. So that supply of labor to the U.S. labor market has already come online. So you've got, lack, you've got a decrease in the new supply of millennial labor, and you've got a, um, basically a decrease also in the, in the supply of, uh, of existing boomer labor. So I think all these factors are inflationary. And then, and then the last thing I'll mention is interest on ex- excess reserves. Now we get to the sort of money supply question. So I actually agree with you, Ansel, that Money supply, there's not a strict correlation between, you know, printing money or creating money supply and seeing inflation or causing inflation. Um, There's various factors in between. But I will say that with respect to the money supply, the Fed was printing all this money and it mostly, as you know, I think you've talked about it in the past, went onto the bank's balance sheets. Well, excess reserves, as you know, you guys have talked about again at the Fed have increased and that's dead money, right? I'm putting, I'm, I'm parroting your own words at you, I think. But what was interesting about that money, those excess reserves was for the last few years, the Fed was actually paying a decent rate of interest on those excess reserves, right? Close to 2%, no more. 
they took the the IOER, the interest on excess reserves, from you know two and change percent down to I think it's at ten basis points now, right? Which is basically zero. So I actually think there's a pretty good chance that banks that weren't lending money and therefore increasing the money supply and you know sort of pushing more money and credit into the economy because they could get two percent risk free from the Fed. I think they're going to be less likely to do that now that they're getting almost zero from the Fed. So these are some major factors. Um, some of those are in response to your uh, to your statements, and uh, I, I guess I'll hand it off there. Deflation caused by technology or stimulated by technology um, is driven by the inflationary environment. So the reason why when China came on board, prices fell as a deflationary force was because they were expanding their credit. And there is a huge credit bubble in China, right? They pumped it up from the 90s, the 2000s. So the inflation in China drove deflation everywhere else, especially for us and for the global economy in general. So uh, deflationary technological advancement is driven by inflation, not the other way around, I believe. But um, so that, that talks about that. Also demographics, I thought the retiree spending went down when they retired. So as all of these baby boomers are going down, then that means that that's less spending, less velocity, less expansion in the economy. Um, in inflation is a result of expansion. It's not a result of credit uh, of like reserves going up at the Fed. It's you have to have economic growth to have inflation. That's uh, to have an expansion of the economy. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's almost like an identity, right? An expansion in the economy is growth in the economy. So you have to ha- you have to have growth, and we just don't have any growth. Um, I, I believe that there is a direct correlation. You said that there is, you don't think it's necessarily a direct correlation between money printing and prices or money printing and inflation, um, or at least it's obscured. It goes through several different steps, but I don't think that. I think that there is a direct correlation. And the reason why we don't see uh, prices really going up across the board, general price inflation, is because we don't have money printing. I don't think that what the Fed is doing is printing of money. They're just backfilling things. With respect to credit driving deflation, I think that's an interesting idea. I mean, no doubt building factories throughout China, you know, especially in the uh, industrial centers of the Southeast, um, took money, and a lot of that uh, money was borrowed. So I think you're right that expansion of credit can accelerate the installation of, you know, deflationary capacity. Now, so that may be true, um, but I think you're making my argument, which is that's now in reverse, <laughs> right? In other words, yeah, that's been the story of China for the last 20 years, but now that's probably going to be curtailed, even sort of, you know, move backward. So unless you get, I guess, unless and until you get sort of a, I don't know, deflationary depression or reversal of credit in China, you know, I, I see that as being an inflationary force. Now we can debate that point too. Um, that's interesting to think about. With respect to retirement spending, you're right that the general view, you know, or the assumption that people make is that that when they retire, they spend less. And I can tell you from personal experience <laughs> from my clients that retire that they don't stop spending. <laughs> um, and in fact, a lot of them, a lot of the feedback I get late, lately is they're actually worried that their spending is, if anything, going to go up, right, because of the healthcare component. Now, again, we can, we can sort of, we can debate the, you know, how much am I going to be spending on travel? You know, usually that goes up, although not during a pandemic, 
that is a deflationary force, I suppose. <laughs> uh, you know, retiree uh, travel budgets during the deflation or the during the pandemic have for sure come down. Um, but that's um, but I would say that it, it's a bit of a people assume that that uh, household budgets go down when people retire. And I think that effect is, you know, exaggerated or, or overstated. Um, I'm trying to think of uh, other points that, uh, that you made and I'm blanking on one. So I'm going to, so I'm going to hand it back for the moment. Inflation was a direct effect of the money supply. And you said it was separated by a couple steps. And I said, no, it's actually directly correlated and we don't yes. have inflation. That's why yes, the prices yes. aren't going up. Yes. Yes. Okay, good. I like that one. And here, I think maybe we can we can uh, debate the debate the timing, which is to say, we just had helicopter money, right? We just had stimulus checks uh, mailed to, I don't know, a couple. I don't know the number actually. I think it was at the peak twenty million or something. You know, Americans that were officially unemployed. Um, so, so the 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 amount of unemployment benefits that has been paid out increased dramatically, and as you probably know, the average budget of, or I should say the average monthly income of an unemployed person in the U.S. now, or at least the last few months, compared to last year has gone up, right? 70% of people are collecting more money in total than they were, you know, before the pandemic and the mass unemployment. So we're, so we're already getting the, the sort of helicopter money stimulus. And, you know, a lot of people are, are spending it, um, I was talking to a portfolio the other the other manager or manager the other day talking about how he's been surprised by how how high boat sales have been. <laughs> um, you know, small business owners um, as well as individuals, you know, splurging on uh, on on you know some luxury goods, other consumer goods, but basically spending. So now we're in this funny position where Congress is trying to pass another stimulus bill. Probably there'll be more checks sent. We don't know yet what it'll look like. There'll be a fight, you know, between the parties. But I expect more of that helicopter money coming. And then a question is, well, what, you know, looking beyond the election, I think the Democrats are going are gonna to spend and hand out money. Um, I don't know what the Trump administration, you know, will do if, it, if it's intact. But I think there are a lot of, I would say the preponderance of potential scenarios uh, looks, look like they include more spending, you know, more direct money, UBI, call it what you want, basically into the pockets of people than we had, you know, say last year or, uh, or in prior years. But curious your view on that. Yeah, the helicopter money stuff. Um, I, I don't think it's inflationary. Uh, the, I don't think it's helicopter money, right? It's backfilling lost money. So yeah, you give them the average wages supposedly have gone up very slightly, but okay. So let's just say for argument's sake, wages are steady because they've gotten these stimulus checks, but savings rates have gone up to 30%. So there's a lot of companies that are missing out on revenues. There are a lot of companies that are missing out on a bunch of different things in the economy. There is no expansion. Like no, very few people are starting businesses right now compared to normal times. So there, there is still a deflationary pressure. Also, if you look at Europe, okay, so Europe just passed their recovery fund, which is a bunch of helicopter money for the governments and things, a uh, bunch of printing and loans and all this stuff, grants. 
well, what's happened to the euro? It's going through the roof compared to the dollar uh, because I believe it is a confidence game. The people over there, the Europeans now believe that, hey, look, this might work. There might be some growth that comes from this. Let's go out and spend maybe, you know, let's give it a chance. So it's actually the reverse. Helicopter money makes people think that expansion is likely, that this might work. And so that kind of helps the game. That's why Powell goes on TV and says, we're printing no holds barred. We will have the economy. The Fed put is we have your back because they want you to get out there and spend and act normally. They want to snap you out of this deflationary depression malaise that we're in and get you spending again. So it's, it's, uh, they want it to be inflationary very, very badly, but that's not how you get inflation. You have to actually grow the economy to get inflation. So I think this is a perfect segue into my first question, which is Ansel, can you explain that idea a little bit more? Because like, I understand that there's a difference between a global reserve currency and a Venezuela. But when I think of Venezuela hyperinflation, I do not think of growing the economy at all. Like it seems like everything breaks apart because of the inflation. So can you kind of explain that a little bit more? Well, I don't know the exact like balance sheet of the Central Bank of Venezuela or anything like that. I would assume though that they're not offsetting their spending with debt. So when you when you offset your spending with debt, um, there's you have to pay back principal and interest, right? So that's actually. Uh, built-in deflation because you can't pay off your principal and interest if they don't print more money in the future. If, if they don't print more money in the future, then it'll deflate. The credit will drop to zero. So there's a built-in deflationary pressure. So in Venezuela and some of these other co- countries, who knows, maybe they just spent without issuing treasuries or bonds. You know, they just plus up their accounts in all their government departments, bank accounts, and they start spending money. If it's not backed by debt, then it, it, it will be massively inflationary. That's why uh, the MMT people, they, they say, oh, we can get inflation because they, will, they don't have to issue bonds. They just spend money out of magic. Uh, that is massively inflationary. If that happens, yeah, that could be like uh, not a match into a, a pile of hay, but a blowtorch into that. And we could get major inflation immediately if – so, yeah, I agree. If, if the Fed or the, the government starts spending unbacked money, it could be very inflationary. Okay, yeah, so just I guess... To key off, just to key off of that, by the way, that's what I expect them to do eventually. Um, so we may, we may actually agree again here, which is to say, and, and you know, there's... My favorite on this topic is, is Lacey Hunt, right? PhD mm-hmm. economist um, over at Hoisington. And he has been dead on correct about the bond market for like 20 years, right? He's just been talking about how interest rates going to go down, 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 down. There's not going to be inflation. Um, and he also concedes that, look, um, if they effectively truly monetize the debts, right, um, then, then that will be inflationary. And I believe that that will probably ultimately be the only option. And I think that in the time period between now and that happening, which could be you know, years, it could be a long time, my belief is that people's expectations about the probability of it happening will shift and that that could be a driver of inflation as well. Okay, you guys, let's do a last word from each individual and then let's close it out. Let's start with Ansel and then close it out with Andy. 
All right. Thanks, Andy, for coming on. Um, I thought we might be at each other's throats more than we were, because, but this was a good debate. Uh, yeah, I think that we need growth to get inflation, and we're not going to have growth for the foreseeable future. Uh, we know how to tackle inflation if it pops up uh, or gets too high. So I'm not, I'm not worried about an inflationary collapse. I'm worried about just a deflationary grind. And I think that that is, that is actually better for Bitcoin. And if a hyperinflation of the dollar or anything like that is very bad for everybody. So um, I'm hoping that it, it, there's just, you know, growth around zero, <laughs> 1% uh, GDP growth every year uh, would be fine by me, but eventually that will force people into places that have more growth, which is Bitcoin. So um, Bitcoin will look better, maybe not because it's hard money, but because that's where growth is. And the growth is there because of these other effects of hard money, like their price signals are better in the Bitcoin economy. Uh, et cetera, et cetera, right? The way that Bitcoin uh, builds its economy around itself uh, is much more appealing to people than to stay in this deflationary grind of the traditional dollar back system. So uh, that's all I have. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. All right. I'll, I'll close with, I agree. And hyperinflation is bad. It should be avoided. I don't expect that. I expect, you know, sort of mid to high single digit, maybe low double digit inflation. I actually think that type of environment is better for Bitcoin uh, than a deflationary one because it sort of it highlights Bitcoin's value proposition in terms of maintaining pur purchasing power, but it doesn't go as far as yeah as you know general disaster. Nobody wants that. I know some Bitcoiners, a few who don't care, but uh, I'm not in that camp. Yeah, I think as far as as how the inflation comes about, I think you have to fold in multiple factors, including the it's not just monetary as you I think we agree on. It's also fiscal, right? You got to have big deficits. And ultimately, those deficits have to be truly monetized, which I do expect to happen. And I expect the psychological shift about people's expectations, you know, to, to be one of the sparks for inflation. But uh, I have to admit that uh, timing it is difficult. I expect it's this decade. I actually expect it's within the last, or excuse me, within the next five years. But uh, until, uh, until the future comes, all we can do is debate. And thank you for having me on your show. It's been fun. Um, I'm glad we weren't at each other's throats. Uh, if we do this again, I'll, I'll try to be more aggressive. <laughs> Throwing a couple swear words, that'll work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll keep it less clean. It was a good move. Uh, you mentioning that uh, that your son was uh, was hanging was hanging out. You know, maybe that maybe that caused me to hold back a little. Oh, he can't hear anything. I got it on this. <laughs> We're safe. Andy, where can people find you? Yeah, man. I'm on Twitter, uh, Edstrom Andrew on Twitter, uh, website, andyedstrom.com. And then, of course, the book is Why Buy Bitcoin. It's on Amazon, 4.9 stars out of five. Uh, check it out if you haven't already. Thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, thank you for coming on. You guys can find the show at Bitcoin Magazine Podcast. Make sure to give us those five-star reviews. Make sure to share this show on uh, Facebook, on Twitter, on YouTube, all the places where you consume your Bitcoin content. You can find me at CK underscore snarks. Uh, Antel, where can people find you? BitcoinDictionary.cc. Just, uh, released, just released uh, my first book, so I'm excited for that. It'll be coming out Bitcoin Independence Day, August 1st. And uh, yeah. Yeah, so that, that's going to be this weekend, guys. Make sure to order the book, Bitcoin Dictionary. Make sure to order and read Why Buy Bitcoin. And again, make sure to share FedWatch. Peace.
a quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research.